Well, good morning. Happy New Year. It's the 5th of January, 2020. Unbelievable. Our series through the uh, Christmas narratives is concluded, and as we said we would, we are resuming our study of Paul's letter to the church in Rome. And I, and I think if we, if we time this exactly right, we might just finish this right before we move to the new building, which would just be kind of poetic, wouldn't it? I'm not going to take a great deal of time this morning or really any time at all to review other than to note that in chapters 1 through 11 of Romans, Paul laid out the gospel, um, God's good news that we can be justified, made right with God by his grace alone, through personal faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. And then at verse 1 of chapter 12, with that word, therefore, that kind of a hinge word, Paul turns the corner, and he began to lay out the implications of the gospel, practical implications, as we will continue to see through chapter 15. We find ourselves this morning in the middle of what we might call Paul's teaching on practical Christianity, uh, how the gospel shapes our character and our conduct and our relationships. Uh, I want to remind you that uh, all of our messages are available online, and so if you came late to this sermon series and you'd like to uh, hear more, you can go to our website, uh, lpcoli.com, and uh, click on the resources tab there, and you'll find all the sermons that uh, you've missed and more. You can get caught up. And and while I'm mentioning that, I also want to take a moment to acknowledge Matt Sidley for uh, what I think was an excellent, excellent message on uh, Romans 13, 1 through 7. Uh, Clear back on December 1st when Marcy and I were out of town celebrating our anniversary. I I just thought it was a great message. Is Matt here today? He didn't get to hear all these glowing words. Uh, You may know, some of you may know that Matt and Emily are considering uh, planting a church. And uh, it's very exciting. And uh, I just, I think that Matt as a leader has grown, as a preacher has grown. And I just thought that uh, December 1st was the best message I've heard him preach. And just, he just did a great job. So I'm very excited for them and for him and for all the lives ahead and that we get to be a part of all of that. Uh, There's a sermon notes form in your program this morning. You might want to pull that out. And then it finally mentioned, uh, Evan mentioned on, uh, as he was doing the announcements that uh, we have an, a life group on-ramps event uh, next Sunday, and that's your opportunity if you're not yet part of a life group uh, to exercise that option and join one. Uh, we'd also like to add some new groups this year. We've had a couple of groups that have dropped out, a couple of leaders that have taken a break, and so we need to fill that deficit, but... Uh, you know, there are a lot of people here at LifePoint who still aren't a part of a life group, and there are going to be more that are coming when we move into our new building and people that we've never met before. And, and our, our life groups really are that place where you connect relationally, you grow spiritually, you serve missionally together, and uh, so they're pretty important little items. And so if you are a person who would be willing to lead a group, here's, here's, what, here's what needs to be true of you. You need to be a believer in Jesus Christ, you, uh, you need to say that LifePoint is your church. You're not just kind of roaming in and out. Um, and, and third, that you're in, in 
agreement with our doctrine. That's kind of important. So um, if you are willing to allow God to use you that way, I would love to talk with you. And you can take that connection card that's in your program, uh, rip that out, and, uh, and fill that out. And I would love to have a conversation with you. Let's uh, bow in prayer together. Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for a new year, uh, a new opportunity to uh, serve you, to know you better, to love you more. And uh, God, we pray that by your spirit today, you would come and teach us that uh, we would see Jesus high and lifted up. And Lord, that uh, you would meet with each of us according to your purpose for this morning. We, we affirm, we acknowledge that uh, none of us is here by accident today. And so there are things that uh, you want to speak into our lives. So Holy Spirit, come and do that um, and minister to each one of us according to our need this morning. Open the eyes of our hearts, the ears of our hearts, that we would hear and see uh, the things that uh, you want to reveal. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So will you stand with me and let's read this morning's scripture together. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ, And make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. This is God's word. You may be seated. I've uh, organized our study of today's passage of scripture around four imperatives that arise from the text. And they are in order. Pay up, verses 8 to 10. Wake up, verses 11 to 12a. Shape up, verses 12b to 13, and dress up, verse 14. Uh, you have your sermon notes for them. Those are the four blanks, and so you're, you, you can just sit back because you've got those filled out. <laughs> pay up, wake up, shape up, and dress up. Well, let's begin with that first one, pay up, verses 8 to 10. And let me just review that with us. Um, oh, no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. It's important that we understand the flow of Paul's thought in this passage. Sometimes we read a passage in isolation without checking with what went before it and what came after. And, and oftentimes when we do that, we, we end up with a misinterpretation 
of the passage at hand. In verses 1 to 6 of chapter 13, Paul has been urging that followers of Jesus Christ be in subjection to the governing authorities. Uh, In verse 7 then, he adds, Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes, to whom taxes are owed. This is a timely time to think about that, right? Revenue, to whom revenue is owed. Respect, to whom respect is owed. Honor, to whom honor is owed. And in keeping with the overall theme of of the first six verses, Paul in verse 7 is speaking primarily of the responsibility of a Christ follower, a Christian, um, in relation to the state. But verse 7 also serves as a kind of transitional verse for what Paul takes up in verse 8, where he continues, Owe no one anything. Owe no one anything except... To love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. In verse 7, he says then, just just review, pay to all what is owed them. In verse 8, he shifts gears and gives the command, owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Now I want to pause here momentarily and address a misinterpretation of verse 8 that I've occasionally encountered over the years. Some people believe that what Paul says in this verse means that Christians uh, should never, ever borrow money, never, ever incur debt by taking out a loan. And then from that premise, they proceed to develop a whole body of teaching that essentially forbids going into any kind of debt whatsoever. And I simply want to say that I don't believe this is what Paul is saying. Uh, And the reason I don't believe believe it is that And again, without getting into the deep weeds on this subject, which we could do, um, both Old and New Testaments address the matter of borrowing and lending and and provide guidelines for both. What the scriptures promote is responsible financial stewardship, uh, including warnings about knowingly taking out a loan that you cannot repay within the terms of the loan, and also about failing to repay what you owe. So what is Paul saying here in verse 8? Among the various modern translations of the Bible, the the New International Version probably captures this best for our modern minds. It says, let no debt remain outstanding. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another, for whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. So, so here's the exception. There's, there is a continuing debt, a continuing debt, Paul says, to love one another. Now let's think about what that means for just a moment. If love is a continuing debt, then it means that we are never at liberty to stop loving others. Stop loving each other. It means that you and I will never arrive at a place where we can say, oh, I can quit loving now. I've, I've loved quite enough. <laughs> I've probably fulfilled the law because I've been so loving. Well, in the latter part of verse 8, Paul then provides the reason. It's because whoever loves another has fulfilled 
the law. And to support his argument, he goes on and says in verse 9, For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now I love that he adds that little phrase, and any other commandment. Because it tells us that he isn't, in this case, trying to exhaust the commandments by listing them all, but simply offering examples. Uh, the, the commands that he includes are four of the second five of the Ten Commandments. But in another place, Jesus said that the entirety of the law and the prophets hang on the two great commandments, love the Lord your God, with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says in verse 10, Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Now, I don't want you to miss this morning the radical nature of what Paul is saying here. Love, he says, is the fulfilling of the law. Paul is defining love here as scrupulously obeying God's law. He's saying love is really just following the law. And notice with me then that Paul refuses to do what some people want to do, and that is to pit love and law against each other. The obedient thing, he says, is the loving thing. The loving thing is the obedient thing. So if we want to love others, he wants us to understand and take to heart that we will carefully obey God's commands. May I just say this morning what I think all of us inherently know, but may never say, especially to ourselves. Paul is laying down here something that is foreign to our modern mindset, to modern thought. We 21st century moderns consider ourselves woke. That's the new term, right? Woke. Bad grammar, new term. We consider ourselves enlightened. And it's not an overstatement that Christians and pagans alike have largely bought into what someone in the last century described as situational ethics. Meaning that Rather than judging the ethics of an action or a pattern of behavior according to a set of absolute moral standards, we are instead to take into account the situation, the context, the particular circumstances as really the higher value. The only absolute in that school of thought is love as it is defined by the individuals who happen to be in the situation. Love, it is said, should be the motive behind every decision. And so in some cases, some situations, the loving thing to do is to break the law, whether it's the law of God or the laws of the state. For example, often we, we know that the real truth will hurt someone, so we lie. Or in some way we hedge the truth or withhold the truth or avoid the truth entirely. And some may go to extreme and even bizarre lengths 
to avoid having to acknowledge the truth at all. So in that way of thinking, as long as love is your intention, the ends justify whatever means you choose. And justice, then, is not in the letter of the law. It is in the expression and application of love as it is defined and constrained by the individual. But Paul's warning us here not to presume that we are wiser than God in determining what will hurt or help. The wisest man who ever lived taught us in Proverbs 3.5, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Now let's face it, when we talk about the loving thing, in, in many cases, more often than not, what we really mean is the comfortable thing. The comforting thing, uh, the palatable thing, even the politically correct thing. That is the thing that will cause the person the least disturbance, the least distress. And then we dress that up by calling it sensitivity or tolerance or even compassion. But only the God who created us, only the God who is the architect of our souls, Only the God who loves us with an everlasting love knows what our ultimate needs really are. The underlying premise of a situational ethic is that love and law are somehow incompatible with each other. But consider this. You don't have to agree with me, but consider this. Love cannot manage on its own without an objective moral standard. John Stott wrote that love needs law for its direction. Love needs law for its direction. And law needs love for its inspiration. Disobeying God's law is never simple obedience. It's not something we can just blow off. Every sin you and I commit is also an assault on God's wisdom. It's an assault on, uh, on his wisdom. It's also a failure of love. Remember the words of Adam in the garden when God confronted him about what he had done? And God said, have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? You remember his response? That's right. The man said, the woman you gave me to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. (laughs) So what Adam was saying in that moment is that his sin was not ultimately his responsibility. It was due to an inherent defect in God's wisdom. If you hadn't given me this woman, I wouldn't be in this predicament. And in doing that, Adam failed in love for both God and for his wife, didn't he? It's an assault on God's wisdom and a failure of love. 
Love fulfills the law, Paul wrote, because it does no wrong to a neighbor. Instead, it serves and seeks the highest good of our neighbor. The law, therefore, is God's way of saying, you want to do your neighbor no harm? Well, here's how. Follow my law, not your own instincts. Follow my law, not your own wisdom. Follow my law, not your own flawed definition of love. Does that make any sense to you? You guys are a little bit more awake than the first service, but they had that blank look as well. (laughs) Paul goes on in verses 11 to 12a, and he says, wake up, wake up. And one of the things I remember with some amusement from my teen years is how easily my dad would fall asleep in his chair uh, when he came home from work. He would turn on the CBS Evening News with Walter Cronkite, uh, sit down in his recliner, and from there he would do what today some might call multitasking. In his case, that meant listening to Walter Cronkite and reading the newspaper. And it wasn't long before ever, it was never long before that newspaper was flat on his face. And, and, and under, from underneath the newspaper would come the most obnoxious snoring you've ever heard. And at that age, I, I wasn't usually very interested in the evening news. So frequently when the snoring started, I would tiptoe over to the television set and as quietly as I could change the channel to something I wanted to watch without, of course, waking the beast. <laughs> but I was usually unsuccessful. And somehow he, he sensed the change in the sound on the TV and he would awaken and the newspaper would come down from his face and he would say, hey, I was watching that. <laughs> you know, we all go, yeah, right, Dad. It's disheartening to me to realize that in this sense, at least, I have become very much like my father. <laughs> or so my wife and children have informed me. But have you ever thought about this? That you never know that you've gone to sleep until you're awakened? Uh, you may have consciousness beforehand that you're drifting in that direction. And you know afterward that you've been asleep, but you don't know, none of us know, the actual moment that we fall asleep. Nor are you conscious when you're asleep of the fact that you are sleeping. And in verses 11 to 12, Paul continues, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. The sleep that Paul says we should wake from is, of course, not a physical sleep, but a kind of spiritual slumber. It is brought on by spiritual lethargy, a carelessness in the nurture of our souls a casualness in our concern for the things that contribute to spiritual vitality, complacency about our obligation to those who do not yet know Jesus. And the tragedy of it all is that quite often it is true that we're not even aware that we're asleep spiritually. And it irritates us and even offends us when someone attempts to wake us up. 
Paul says that the reason that we need to wake up has to do with the time. Specifically, as Christ followers, we are to live with the consciousness that with each new day of our lives, our salvation, our salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. You may say, well, it's nearer to me? Am I not saved now? And the answer is, yes, if you have trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, then you have, you're saved from the penalty of your sin. But there's more to salvation than mere forgiveness. And the Bible says in, in many, so many words that having been saved, past tense, from the penalty of our sin, we are now being saved, present tense, from the power of sin. We sometimes refer to that as sanctification. And one day, we will be saved, future tense, from the very presence of sin when we see Jesus face to face. It is that third way of thinking about our salvation that Paul has in mind here. With each passing minute, hour, day, month, year, we are, each of us, closer to the moment of his coming. That moment may be our own death, or it may be that we are living in the generation that Jesus, when Jesus will return and rapture the church. Either way, our salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. It's surprising to realize that nearly a quarter of the verses in the New Testament, one in 24 verses in the New Testament, addresses the fact of the soon return of Jesus. It's when we lose sight of that and we forget about that and we neglect it that we tend to fall asleep spiritually. We forget that the day of reckoning, of settling accounts is coming. We, we forget that the day when the one who loves us best will arrive for us. The psalmist wrote, Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. The apostle Peter wrote that the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And he followed that with the question, what sort of people ought you to be then in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? See, when we realize that Jesus' return is imminent, we wipe the sleep from our eyes and we start asking different questions. Questions like, how should I be living now? Uh, What is really and eternally important what can I invest my life in that, that will last forever? And by the way, the Bible says that there are only two things that last forever, God's word and people. God's word and people. So what are you investing your life in? You know, I, it's, it's hard for me to think that any of us who have read even a little bit of the New Testament in viewing the events of this past weekend in the Middle East, would not say, Jesus must be coming very, very soon. Very soon. Are we ready? 
And Paul addresses that then in verses 12 to 13 when he says, shape up. Or if you like the word better, clean up. (laughs) He says, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. You know the, the themes of most of the shows that we like. See, it's not enough to know the time. And that realization should change our behavior. For those who are in possession of the hope of eternal life, there is a purifying effect to the realization that our salvation is very, very near. The Apostle John wrote that all who have this eager expectation will keep themselves pure just as he is pure. And this suggests that anyone who is not struggling to pursue holiness in their lives, is either literally or functionally ignorant of the coming of Jesus, i.e. asleep. Because their faith provides no moral motivation, no moral impetus. I love J.B. Phillips' paraphrase of verses 12 to 13. He, He renders it this way, Let us therefore fling away the things that men do in the dark. Let us arm ourselves for the fight of the day. Let us live cleanly as in the daylight, not in the delights of getting drunk or playing with sex, nor yet in quarreling or jealousies. Let us be Christ's men and women from head to foot and give no chances to the flesh to have its fling. Isn't that good? There's an amazing illustration from history that, that links to these verses. When the man whom we know in history as St. Augustine, or Augustine, however you choose to pronounce it, people in the country call him Augustine, people in the city call him Augustine. I think that's the way it works. But when he was young, he became very promiscuous. And not only that, but he confessed in his uh, famous book that's simply titled Autobiography, that he bragged about having committed sins that, in fact, he had never had even the opportunity to commit. But he did that just to maintain the appearance of keeping pace with his promiscuous friends. And he took a mistress, and she bore him a son. And all the while, his mother prayed and prayed and prayed for his salvation. Well, he happened to travel to Italy, and it was there that he came under deep conviction of the truth of the gospel. Uh, which is uh, a great motivation, moms and dads, to pray for our kids and keep praying. But Augustine struggled to surrender himself to God because he had what we would call today a sexual addiction. He just couldn't let it go. But he was miserable inside and torn up. And from that place of brokenness, of tornness, of of misery, he began to cry out to the Lord. And he was in a garden one day, a walled garden. And he happened to hear from the other side of the wall a a young child's voice chanting, Take it and read it. Take it and read it. Take it and read it. And Augustine heard that little child's voice as the voice of God speaking into his life. And he grabs his Bible And he opens it, and the first thing his eyes land on is this. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on 
the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. In that moment, God changed his heart. Uh, And he believed, he repented entirely of his sin. Uh, He was baptized. In time, he became one of the greatest Christian leaders of his day. And his influence reaches down to us even today. And that brings us to Paul's fourth imperative. Dress up. Dress up. Verse 14. There are two things that Paul says in this passage that we're to put on. In verse 12, we're to put on the armor of light which points to preparation for battle against darkness. I don't have time to unpack that today. But it's armor. It's armor of light. Armor suggests battle. And then here in verse 14, the the garment we are to put on is very personal. He says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Well, what does that mean, to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what I think it means. It is to deliberately, consciously, submit ourselves to his lordship, to his mastery, to his leadership in our lives, his control of our motives and our desires and our actions, our minds. Paul is speaking here to believers, I think, who have already, in one sense, put on Christ. He he wrote to the Galatian believers, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So the question is, if they've already put on Christ by trusting in him and being baptized into him, what does he mean here? Here's what I think. I'm not going to say this is the absolute interpretation. Here's what I think he's getting at. He's getting at the the thought that there's always room for decisive renewal. There's always room for waking up spiritually. For fresh faith. For new steps, new strides in our walk of obedience to Jesus. So here we are in the first Sunday of January 2020. Someone said to me between services, I never thought I'd live this long. (laughs) But here we are. Isn't it time for you to wake up? Isn't it time for you to come out of your slumber? Isn't it time to shape up in new repentance of sin and in new obedience. Isn't it time for you to dress up, to clothe yourself in Christ, to surrender your life to him? Some of you have not even made that initial decision to trust in Christ as your savior. Why not now? He's coming. Are you going to be ready? He's coming. 
For some of you, you, you may have made that decision long ago to trust in Christ. But maybe today is the time, isn't it time, for you to renew your relationship with God by repenting of sin in your life. Beginning a new year in the right way. I want to do the same. I, there are some things that God has revealed to me that I need to repent of. And I want this year to be a year of growth in my life personally. I want to be that person that Paul talked about, be the man of God from head to foot. I want to be that man. Will you join me? Will you join me in waking up? and shaping up, and dressing up in this new year. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word. Will you speak it by your spirit in ways that I never can begin to deeply into our lives, into our hearts, into our character, into our decision-making, into the throne room of our lives. And would you enable us by your Spirit to surrender to you in new ways, new aspects of our lives. Would you make us the people make us the church that you want us to be. Lord, we know that we have a long ways to go. But it's exciting because it's an adventure of walking with you as you lead us into new realizations, new discoveries, new enterprises for your kingdom. Come and rule and reign over us, we pray. As I've asked you to join me, I, as I am here, I, if that's your desire this year, to really grow and to experience new dimensions of obedience in your walk with God, would you just stand where you are? I'm not asking you to make some kind of phony commitment. Don't stand if if that's not your desire, but would you just stand with me right now if that is your desire? Lord, here we are standing before you, and you know the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. Lord, would you meet us here? Would you lead us forward? For your glory for your kingdom.